That'll be okay though. Let's see. Figured I could move my podium up since y'all are acting like a bunch of good Baptists and uh, avoiding the front row. What? Yes, exactly. No one wants to sit in the splash zone. Um, yes, wow. I feel like I still need to wake up a little bit despite... I, you could tell I kind of fell asleep at the end of that first song. Like, I was, there's supposed to be Cajon at the end of that song, and there was not. So, um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so tonight we're going to be discussing prayer. I told Matt the title of the uh, message is going to be Why Pray? And I'm hearing a little bit of our song playing in the speakers, Matt. Um, it's awful confusing since it's muted. <laughs> yeah, you can hear it too. <laughs> I do hear it. I appreciate that. <laughs> so it's, it's a scientifically it's impossibility. It's down and muted, so I'm not sure what... No, I turned it off now. I turned it off now. Okay, great. Yes, tonight's topic is why pray. And since we're discussing prayer, I felt it fitting to begin with a word of prayer, not just a word of prayer, but a word from Christ's model prayer. In fact, I wanted to pray the Lord's Prayer... Um, as Christ delivered it in the original languages, just to, I don't know, give you guys a sense of that, and because, I don't know, I really like doing that. Um, now, in the early church, it was customary to add further petitions to the Lord's Prayer. Um, uh, one of the church fathers, uh, Tertullian, he was um, from North Africa, from Carthage, and he would uh, say, like, hey, the Lord's Prayer is my rule of prayer, but uh, I permit, as the need requires, to add further petitions to it. So we're going to do that too. Um, we're going to pray through the most of the Lord's Prayer until we get to, um, and lead us not into temptation, and then I'm going to transition to English. You'll know we have gotten there because I'll transition to English and pray for the evening as well. Um, so yeah, with that said, um, let's bow our heads, and you're welcome to follow along in English in your head if you would like to. Pater Himon, Hoenteus Uraneus, Aiesteto to onomasu, Eseto e vasiliasu, Yeneteto to stalemasu, Hosen urano, Caepies. Ton arton hemonton epiusion, dos semin semeron, Ke afe seminta o filemata hemon, Hosca hemis afecamente o sofiletai semon. Ca me isenenke semas ispiras mon, Alla rusa hemas, Apotiponeru. Yes, Lord, let these words that you received us be our prayer this evening. You are our Father who is in heaven. You are an amazing God, and we are thankful for the blessings that you bestow upon us. We pray that you could continue to shower your blessings uh, this evening, um, particularly that your Holy Spirit could work among us, um, that whatever I say wouldn't be my own opinions, Lord, but would be uh, your truth spoken from your word. I pray that uh, your Holy Spirit could work so that um, something I say could touch each individual here and that that could affect their prayer life and affect the way they think about prayer. Hotisu estin, he vasilia, kahezunimis, kahedoxa, istusayonas. Amen. Amen. So yes, today we're going to be discussing the question, like I said, of why pray. And uh, this question might not have occurred to you in the past, um, in fact, I would say there's many Christians, maybe even most Christians who go their entire life without asking the question, why pray? They read in God's word that praying is something they're supposed to be doing, and they're like, hey, that's great. Um, and there's nothing wrong if you haven't asked the question, why pray? But I know for many believers, the question of why pray kind of sits 
in the back of their head. And for me, this question arose recently whenever I was doing a um, series of classes on the Sermon on the Mount. You see, right before Jesus gives that model prayer um, that we just prayed together, um, he gives a few other instructions on how we should approach God. Um, And yeah, some of these statements are interesting. In fact, I think the most interesting and perhaps the most perplexing comes right before, literally the verse right before the Lord's Prayer starts. And in this little statement, this little bit of teaching, Jesus says that our Father in heaven knows what we need before we ask him. Our Father knows what we need before we ask him. That's Matthew 6, verse 8, paraphrased a little bit. But whenever I first heard that statement, a little uh, red flag popped up in my head because I I was wondering, okay, so if God knows my needs before I even ask him, then why even ask him? That a thought might have occurred to you. If God knows my needs before I even ask him, then why do I need to ask him? Because it's interesting because Jesus isn't using this fact about God's knowledge of our needs as an excuse to not pray. In fact, he almost treats it as an excuse to pray. He's like, you should pray in this way because God knows your needs. And again, to me, I'm like, that's, that's kind of confusing. I don't really know what to make of that. And I think if you, I don't know, I see some people like thinking, I see the eyes squinting, I see a couple of nods there. And I would say if, if you are nodding along with me and being like, yeah, yeah, I don't really know why we're supposed to be praying if God knows our needs, then I would suggest to you that you have the same problem that I did, and I still probably do, because God knows my imperfections. And there's a problem with my prayer. And the problem is a matter of emphasis, a matter of emphasis in our prayer. You see, most of us operate under the assumption that prayer is for the purpose of what we can get. We have a results-oriented focus on prayer. It's what we can get from God. It's not about who we are relating to when we pray. Now, this emphasis on what we get from God can blend with the rest of our theology and play itself out in a number of ways. I'm going to focus on two, I guess three, depending on how you break it down. But I'm going to focus on two ways that this emphasis can blend with the way that we view God and influence the way we pray. The first way that this emphasis on what we can get merges with the rest of our theology is that we treat prayer as only an internal affair. We treat prayer as only an internal affair and we have no faith that our prayers will actually be heard and answered. We treat prayer as an internal affair and we have no faith that our prayers will be answered. That's the first way. And honestly, these are extreme, so you might not agree with everything that I'm saying here. And the second way is that we treat prayer as a way of compelling God to get what we want. The second way is that it blends with our theology and we treat prayer as a way to compel God to get what we want. So let's look at each of those for a moment. So the first one is that we treat prayer as only an internal affair. Um, So as I said, each of these views we're going to be discussing blend uh, with the rest of our theology. And this approach, I think, blends most with a high view of God's sovereignty. This view of treating prayer as only only an internal affair blends with a high view of God's sovereignty. In fact, I'd say that this high view of God's sovereignty can result in us overplaying God's sovereignty at the expense 
of our prayer. Now, I'm sure that many of you are thinking when I say overplaying God's sovereignty, I, I see the confused face you're giving in the back, Jack. Um, how can we overplay God's sovereignty? How can we overplay God's sovereignty? God is king over the universe. He rules over all time, all history, everything. How can we overplay that? And, and you know, I agree with that. Obviously, that's all true. That's all biblical. Uh, God has absolute, role, absolute rule over the whole universe. By overplay... I mean, using God's sovereignty to deny the effect that prayer has upon God. Let me say that again. By overplay God's sovereignty, I mean using God's sovereignty as an excuse to deny the effect that prayer has upon God. And when this happens, when we deny the effect that prayer has upon God, then our prayers simply become therapeutic. Prayer becomes entirely about changing our heart. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing in and of itself. I think prayer ultimately accomplishes that, and we'll get to that at the very end of our lesson. But the issue here is that that's the only purpose of prayer in this view. The only purpose of prayer is to be therapeutic and to change our hearts. Now, usually people of this view begin to equate God's sovereignty with some form of determinism, which is the idea that, uh, you know, everything is determined throughout human history. We have no free will. Since, uh, Since God has already decreed what he will do, Since God has already determined what will happen, the only reason that we ought to pray is so that we can reorient our desires to match God's desires. I think a staple of this viewpoint is an individual having very little faith that God will actually hear their prayers and respond to them, as I said earlier. And I mean, that makes sense. If you think that God has already planned out everything, then you believe that your words really don't make a difference. If you believe your words don't really make a difference, then why would you have faith that God will respond to what you say? It's a big question. This isn't an issue that we are facing only nowadays. It's not like we've been around 2,000 years and actually thought, oh, wait a second, that's a really weird aspect of prayer. Is that, how does that work? Um, In Acts 12, we hear of how Peter was arrested and thrown into prison by King Herod. And just before Peter's arrest, James, the brother of John, uh, had also been arrested and his arrest uh, led to his execution. So um, things didn't look too great for Peter either. However, a group of devout believers held a prayer meeting for Peter, requesting that Peter might be spared James' fate and be rescued from prison. And so while they're praying, while all this is going on, Peter is visited by an angel. And there's this lovely detail in the story, which I just love. And that's the, the angel whacks Peter. <laughs> like literally, Peter's like, like, I guess, sleeping. And he like whacks Peter on the side. I like to think like just karate chopped. I'm like, wake up, you know. <laughs> so he whacks Peter on the side, wakes Peter up, removes Peter's shackles, opens the door to the cell and leads Peter out of the prison. And then the angel vanishes. And Peter uh, thinks he's having a dream. <laughs> up until this point. Like, I don't know if he feels like the cool night air and is like, wait a second, I don't get this breeze in my cell. <laughs> and, he, and he realizes that a miracle has happened. So he rushes to tell everyone. He rushes to the place where the prayer meeting is happening. He gets to the gate and this servant girl named Rhoda is there. Um, and Rhoda doesn't even like see Peter. She just hears Peter coming and she um, completely forgets to open the gate for him and just runs into the prayer meeting and runs in and she runs in and she says, guys, Peter's been released. Our prayers have been answered. Can you believe it? And do you know how everyone in the prayer meeting responds? You know what they say to Rhoda? 
you're crazy. To her face, they say, you're crazy. That's just bewildering to me because isn't the whole point of the prayer meeting for Peter to be released? You see, no one in that meeting had the faith to believe that their prayers were answered. No one in that meeting had the faith to believe their prayers were answered. They all thought Rhoda was crazy and that that was a more acceptable answer than she was saying that Peter was actually released. And I think if you overplay God's sovereignty, and I'm not saying these people were, but if you overplay God's sovereignty, then you can find yourself in a pretty similar situation. And your answer, I mean, if you ask like, hey, should I be praying for Peter's release? Then your answer is ultimately no. That's not the reason you're praying. That's not the reason you're praying. Instead, you're praying that your heart can be reoriented to God's will. Whatever, you, whatever happens. Now, I think this isn't quite a biblical way to go about prayer. Um, it's close, but it's not entirely a biblical way to go about prayer. Because scripture tells us that God hears our prayers. And if our view of God undermines that fact, if we think that God is so sovereign, that he's determined everything, and that way he doesn't interact with our prayers whatsoever, I think we might need to alter our view of God slightly. So that's the first way. First way is having a overplaying God's sovereignty and uh, having a results-oriented uh, view of prayer resulting in us having a very weird kind of view of God, view of prayer where it's only internal. The second way, which I don't think anyone here really fully abides by, is that we treat prayer as a way of compelling God to get what we want. Now, I don't think anyone here would say, yes, I think prayer is me compelling God to get what I want. Um, and in this view, if, you know, we, if the other view overplays God's sovereignty, this underplays God's sovereignty. It doesn't respect God's sovereignty enough. Um, I don't know if you guys heard about all this, uh, but last year there was a presidential election. Um, yeah, and it was, I don't think anyone ever heard of that. Uh, I had to look it up to see if it happened last year. <laughs> That's not a joke. I actually had to look up to see if it, it's been a long year. I had to look up to see. I, as, as Eric said, I'm very tired. <laughs> All three of us are very tired. Um, and during the election night, whenever uh, the votes were being counted, um, Donald Trump's spiritual advisor, her name is Paula White. Um, you might have seen this. She held an impassioned prayer conference where she asked God to, quote, break up the demonic confederations of those in power and to give, quote, victory. She called upon angels from Africa to arrive to do the work of breaking up these demonic confederations, and she chanted, victory, victory, victory. I hear the sound of victory. Victory, victory. I hear the sound. She does it over. It's a kind of a very bizarre video. And it gets even, it gets even more bizarre whenever she um, breaks out into tongues, and no one bothered to transcribe what she said in tongues, so I did it today. Um, she says, and I quote, Ata, ata, rata, ata, riki, eta, baka. Um, now, I'm not, well, I'm, not saying I'm not a linguist. I do know languages. But that, for me, that doesn't, that doesn't sound like any actual language. Maybe it's the language of angels, but it's certainly not the language of man. Now, this behavior by Paula White is very prosperity gospel. It's very name it and claim it theology. And you've probably heard that. And it's basically the idea that if you declare victory strong enough and hard enough, and if you have enough faith, then you can compel God to do whatever you want. Now, they won't ever say it that way, but that's really what they're getting at. If you, can com- you can compel God by having a strong enough faith. You lost your job? Hey, don't worry, claim victory and you can get rehired. Unless you hate that job, in which case you can get a job somewhere else. 
Your marriage is in trouble? Well, hey, just claim victory and your spouse won't cheat on you. Hey, you have a loved one who's terminally ill? Well, hey, just claim victory and that person won't die. But of course, the problem with this is that um, many of us are in situations like uh, King David was in whenever uh, he received the prophecy that his son was going to die. You know, we pray hard. We might pray for seven days straight like David did, not eating food, fasting, laying on the ground, not changing our clothes. And yet the son still dies. Our prayer still goes unanswered. And if we have this view of prayer, that whatever we do is trying to compel God to do something for us. And the negative side is that if God doesn't do what we want, well, then the issue's with us. The issue's with us. If your spouse cheated, if you didn't get rehired, if your loved one died, it's due to the weakness of your prayers and the weakness of your faith. Now, we have a technical word of this um, in theological circles. Um, it's called uh, stupid. This is stupid. That's not the way prayer works. Like, I'm sorry. Like, if you, that's what you believe, then I'm sorry. I'm shattering your theology right here. That's not the way that God works. And despite how patently false this theology is, I, I do think that many of us may suffer from like small, like a very inkling of it in our heads. I think sometimes we may go to prayer and be like, oh, you know, if I just... Like, I just need to make my prayer better. I need to like, use better words. I need to be more eloquent. I need to sound better. That doesn't make your prayer more effective. You only need to put on a show when you're praying. You know, it's so funny because in Jesus' day, prayers were conducted in Hebrew. That was the liturgical language. That was the nice-sounding language. But Jesus conducted his prayers in Aramaic and Koine Greek, which were not the liturgical languages of the day. They were the language that everyone was speaking in. Jesus wasn't printing up his speech. He wasn't doing, putting on a facade to compel God to act. So the problem with both of these positions, as I said, is that we're focusing on what we can get. We're focusing on what we can get. We're trying to have a results-oriented approach to our prayers. But the thing is, that's not what God wants for us when he prays, when we, he asks us to pray. That's not what God wants for us. He doesn't want a results-oriented approach to prayer. He wants us to focus on who we are relating to, which is him. And here's where you hear the cliche that prayer is about relationship. Hey, everyone, prayer is about relationship. It's not about results. And I think that's true, though. As much as I make it a cliche and laugh at it, I do think this is about relationship. I mean, consider um, Psalm 117. Um, Psalm 117, it's, uh, I think, the shortest psalm. It's only two verses. Um, and each of the Psalms are these nice little poetic prayers. And if Psalm 117 is a prayer, which it is, and our, the point of our prayer is results, then Psalm 117 is a really bad prayer because it doesn't ask for anything. It doesn't ask for anything, so it's not going to get anything from God. All it says is, hey, praise God. His steadfast love endures forever. His love for us endures forever. Consider Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. That's the beginning of the Lord's Prayer where we say, Pater Hemon, our Father. God is our Father. Sorry, Kyle, I'm going to give you another one to turn to. So <laughs> Kyle's slipping. He's like, oh, no, I just got to 117. <laughs> Consider Romans 8, 
15 through 17, Romans 8, 15 through 17, where we are said to be God's children. It also says again that God is our father. Romans 8, 15 through 17. I'll actually look at that for a few seconds, Kyle, before we move on. (laughs) You know, if we are God's children and God is our father, then let me suggest that we're supposed to be relating to him. And that's not just talking. You don't just talk at your dad. You listen to him. I mean, maybe some of you just talk at your dad. By the way, if you have a strained relationship with dad and you're just talking with him, talking at him, then that might be one of the issues. Um, So (laughs) you're not just talking at him. You're listening you're being alone and spending personal time with that individual. You're doing things with them. And that's prayer. That's prayer. So if we focus um, not on results and we focus on relationship instead, then all of a sudden we get three reasons why we ought to pray. To answer the question, why pray? So the three reasons why we ought to pray. The first, if you're a note taker, the first is that prayer, when correctly focused on God, leads to an internal transformation. Prayer, when correctly focused on God, leads to an internal transformation. And I know you're thinking, wait, Brody, weren't you just ragging on internal transformation the entire time with that other thing? Yes, yes, I was. But I do think prayer still leads to an internal transformation when we are proper oriented to our Father. That's because if you're in a relationship with someone, then that relationship changes you. If you're brought into a relationship with someone, that relationship changes you. Um, Most of you who have talked with me for a few minutes know, or have watched that one sermon I gave, um, will know that I love birds. It's my defining characteristic is that I love birds. My other defining characteristic is that I stand in front of you guys and talk to you every once in a while. No, I'm just kidding. The other other defining characteristic is... um, it's, it's just birds. <laughs> um, yeah, as Cooney said, it's just birds. Now, I love birds, and uh, I, I really love Shakespeare. In fact, I'm helping out the high school right now with their uh, Shakespeare troupe, teaching stage combat, teaching them how to recite some monologues. Um, and these loves are like a big part of me. But they weren't parts of me that I was born with. Um, for instance, yeah, I didn't... Ben gave me a look. Yes, I am not... I was not born loving Shakespeare, believe it or not. Um, so... Um, and actually, that, uh, that love was instilled in me um, by my Shakespeare mentor, who just so happens to be uh, Matt's aunt and Eric's sister-in-law, uh, Sue Hench. Um, yeah, Sue showed me the beauty of Shakespeare's language, and uh, my friendship with her was really one of the reasons that I came to love Shakespeare so much. And birds only became something I was super in love with uh, whenever I met my wife, whenever I met her. Uh, she was a huge biology nerd. She loved birding, and she's like, oh, I have to take you birding. And I was like, no, that sounds lame. And then I actually went birding, and I was like, this is amazing. So, um, yeah, birds are apparently are really cool. They're really cool creatures. If you don't believe me, just come birding with me. Ben did. Um, I don't know if he loves birds after that. <laughs> um, so, thank you. He enjoys birds. We saw a lot of sharp-shinned hawks that day. Um, and, you know, in a similar way, in a similar way, When we direct our attention to God in our prayers, he can direct our hearts to the things that he desires for us. In the same way that Sue uh, directed my heart towards Shakespeare, in the same way that Morgan directed my heart towards birds, God can direct our hearts to the things that he desires for us. 
I mean, you can just look to the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. You know, the Lord's Prayer asks that God might forgive us, that he could support us, that he could deliver us from evil. And those petitions direct our hearts to our spiritual brokenness, our uh, contingency, our dependence on God. Reorienting our hearts to these truths will affect how we view ourselves and live our lives. There's an internal transformation that happens there, and we are praying this prayer. The Lord's Prayer asks that God's kingdom would come on earth, that his will would be done. And meditating on this, on these petitions, should reorient us so that we can see the role we can play in fulfilling those prayers. We might say, hey, God, your kingdom come. And we think, okay, by whom? Your kingdom come. Who's going to make that happen? It's like, oh, the Holy Spirit's empowering me to do that in this way. That's an internal transformation through prayer. So that's the first reason. Prayer can lead to an internal transformation. The second reason that we should be praying is that prayer gives us the dignity of being persons to God. Prayer gives us the dignity of being persons to God. Now, you remember like whenever I talked about wisdom and work a few weeks ago? It was a long time ago. I talked about rest gives us uh, dignity. There's a dignity that's instilled on us when we rest. It's the same thing with prayer. There's a dignity that's instilled on us whenever we pray. And uh, to demonstrate that, um, I will ask you a question. What is the difference between knowing a person and knowing a rock? <laughs> What's the difference between knowing a person and knowing a rock? I don't think it's a matter of degree of knowledge. I mean, I don't think you can know a rock better than a person because some rocks are very interesting and complex and some people are very boring and not complex. Just kidding. That's, that's a terrible joke. Um, we, had this, we had this pet rock project growing uh, when I was in high school. And we had to like find a rock in its natural habitat. And uh, I found a rock in the Yellow Breaches, which is a disgusting creek. Um, but I found it and uh, we gave it a name and we loved it and cherished it. And then uh, we brought it into class one day and then our uh, teacher was like, so what you're going to do is you're going to put that rock there and you're going to smash it with a hammer. And that's how we had to get to know a rock was to smash it by a hammer. <laughs> but I'm not saying that, you know, if you know people by smashing them with a hammer, but um, that's a huge tangent. I don't even know why I'm talking about that. <laughs> so, the, the question is, what is the difference between knowing a person and knowing a rock? And I'd like to tell you that the answer lies in how you come to know the rock or the person. A rock is known while a person can make themselves known. A rock is known while a person can make themselves known. And the point I'm trying to make by this comparison is that God knows us in our entirety. As we heard earlier, our Father knows our needs before we even ask him. However, if we simply allow ourselves to be known by God, then we're functioning at the same level as rocks to him. We're functioning at the same level as rocks to him. We're being inert, passive. The knowledge is only going in one direction. But when we pray, we have an opportunity to make ourselves known to him. We have an opportunity to make ourselves known to God. We have the opportunity to function as a person before God and to be in relationship with him. There's dignity in that, of being better than a rock. 
We see this in scriptures. Philippians 4, 6 uh, says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. God knows our needs, but he still wants us to make our requests be known to him. So that's the second reason. Prayer gives us the dignity of being persons with God, not rocks. And the third reason is that prayer allows us to be co-workers with God. Prayer allows us to be co-workers with God. That might sound weird, like we're not equal with God by being co-workers with him, but 1 Corinthians 3, 9 says that those who labor for the gospel are God's co-workers, and it's not really a weird idea um, if you consider Genesis 2. <laughs> Sorry, I just jumped from 1 Corinthians 3, 9, comma. we're jumping to Genesis 2. <laughs> so... We're going to play back the recording and you're just going to hear like the leaves of the Bible. Like, <laughs> yeah, speed run the Bible. Exactly. So Genesis two, Genesis two tells us that after creating Adam, God commanded the first human to name the animals. And that sounds like a really weird first job to us nowadays. It's like, yeah, dude, just go name the animals. Have fun. But in the, ancient context in the uh, Hebrew world, this would have had a completely different connotation because to name something was to give it order and purpose. We see that in Genesis 1 where God divides things and then names them in his act of creation. And so naming something was a fundamentally creative act for naming gives the thing a place and a function. So God invites Adam into the process of creation. He invites Adam to be a co-worker in this process of creation. And that makes humanity the only creature to partner with God in such a way. We're the only creatures that partner with God in such a way. Not only that, but God also creates all of humanity, male and female. You guys are almost male and female entirely. We've got like a couple exceptions over here. (laughs) Um, Male and female. Um, That's not going to make sense in the recording. It's going to make it sound like there's exceptions to the male and female in the audience. That's not what I meant. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Anyways, God made all of humanity, male and female, in his image. And by image, it's talking about like us being living statues. An image was used as an extension and a display of someone's sovereignty of their rule. That's why God tells us to have dominion over the earth to exercise sovereignty over it because we are in his image. We are co-workers in his reign and rule. And basically it lets us be a cause in the world, a cause and not just a rock, (laughs) an inert rock. that's just receiving things upon ourselves. In fact, Blaise Pascal, um, who is a famous mathematician as well as a famous Christian, uh, said, God has instituted prayer so as to confer upon his creatures the dignity of being causes. He has instituted prayer so as to confer upon his creatures the dignity of being causes. And to kind of explain that, I just want to say, like, why does God use any of us for anything? Like, we talk about graves into gardens, and, like, you know, we talk about, like, Ezekiel and, like, the valley of dry bones. And, like, Ezekiel prophesies to the valley of dry bones, and then it raises up. Like, did he have to use Ezekiel to do that? No. Moses comes to the Red Sea, and he sticks his staff into the Red Sea, according to the prince of Egypt, and it just, whoosh. Did he have to use Moses to do that? Did he have to use the stick, the rod in his hand to do that? No. 
Moses didn't have to say, let my people go. He didn't need, God didn't need Paul to bring the gospel to Rome. He could have done that himself. And yet, we worship a God who loves to partner with other people. We worship a God who loves to partner with other people, a God who loves to allow us to, be, to participate, to allow us to be causes in this world especially. And even though we tend to get in the way. He wants us to be his co-workers despite that. And prayer is one way that we can participate. So to conclude, I'm going to talk about uh, Philippians 2, verses 13 through 14. It's only going to be a couple of seconds. Philippians 2, verses 13 through 14. You know, we, we oftentimes in our very modern minds, we think, okay, am I doing this or is God doing this? Is it one or the other? Either my prayers do something or God is sovereign over all creation. My prayers do nothing. And yet, in the Bible, it's really not interested in seeing the world that way. It's not an either or, it's a both and. Because Philippians 2, 13 through 14 says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. First, there's a command to the individuals, you work out your salvation. And then he says, for God is the one who works in you. It's not an either and or. Both of you are working together as co-laborers. And that's going on in this passage, and it's also what's going on in prayer. So it's 8 o'clock now. We go to 8.30. Um, There's no discussion questions for you guys, but there is going to be a time of prayer. Um, As you guys pray, I don't want to be focused on results. I mean, sure, you guys can ask for things, but focus on God first. I want you guys to first praise God. Like whenever you, you pray, after you exchange prayer requests, first praise God. Then give thanks for something he's been doing in your life. And I'm going to ask you to pray for two things. So I'll write them on the board so you guys know them. So first, praise God, give thanks, then pray for something he is doing, that God is doing. Pray for something he is doing, whether it be his kingdom coming, whether it be his, that his will be done, something like that, something that God is doing. And then pray for your need. Again, it's praise, thanks, praying for what God is doing, and then praying for what you need. Sound good? Awesome. You guys can break up in your groups, and uh, yeah, I'll be joining one of the groups. I'll write that on the board.